0: last five years, you have turned Greek yogurt, which meant nothing to anyone, into a massive business. How did this really start for you? How did you create this? Help other entrepreneurs right now.
1: You know, I never went to business school. I never worked for anyone before. I don't have an experience of running businesses. You never
0: got a paycheck from any other corporate?
1: No.
2: No. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we were just listening to an interviewer speaking with Shabani Yogurt founder... Hamdi Oyelakaya, a Turkish immigrant who indeed took Greek yogurt from virtually non-existence in American culture to a dominant staple. In literally just a few years, its market share from less than 1% of all yogurt sold in 2007 to get this, more than 50% in 2013. There may not ever have been anything like this in terms of an industry and a revolution in an industry. Now, yeah, it's yogurt. But my goodness, it's a big category, as you'll find out in this remarkable story. We're excited that Hamdi is the latest profile in our American Dreamer series. And we love this series. Our favorite, by the way, in the American Dreamer series, our great hour spent with auto racing legend Mario Andretti. And go to our website at ouramericannetwork.org. Listen to that hour. Mario spent an hour with us, actually more, And we we captured one of the great American dreamer stories. He came from Italy with nothing and turned himself and the family name into one of the great auto racing names in world history. And we'll start this story by hearing Hamdi talk about his early life. This clip comes from his commencement address at the University of Albany, a school he attended when he immigrated to the United States. But his school that he never graduated from.
1: I came from a small town, east of Turkey. Even in Turkey, you cannot find it in the map, next to Euphrates River. And when I make my way up here, as 22, 23 years old young man, spoke no English, had not much money, and I was confused, I was scared, I had a ton of question mark in my head. I really didn't know what the next day is going to be like. And I remember walking around the campus here in downtown. The only escape I had from my worries, going down to the, state, uh, the field, watch the soccer uh, team playing, or uh, getting ready. I love the game when I grow up. And I would always think, what if I can be part of this team? Wouldn't that be awesome? But then, then, then in the evening, I would go back to the farm that I was working with a small sandwich from a steward store. And then the next day, we'll come back. I couldn't afford, or neither I have time, to stay in the college to graduate, because that was my dream to tell my mother I actually graduated from an American university. But I continue. The way that I grew up in the eastern Turkey, in a farm and raising sheep and cows and, and working with my family, and when I came to upstate New York, it felt like a home. You know, it was the same landscape, same people, I felt home. And later on, I realized in order to get best out of yourself, you have to feel home.
2: So true. At one point, his father came to visit and said, quote, they don't have very good feta cheese here. You should make cheese. Hamdi thought this was nuts. He didn't come all the way to America to make cheese. But that's what he did barely breaking even and calling it two years of the most challenging days of his life until he ran across something that felt like it had more promise to it.
1: I got uh, an ad on the paper that said fully equipped yogurt plant for sale. I throw it to my garbage can. It's a true story. And then 20 minutes later, I picked that letter. I said, I wonder what this is all about and I called a person and I went to visit the plant the next day. It turns out it was a craft plant. It was there for 70 to 80 years and a small community and this was the end of it. They were going to close it. 55 people were going to lose their job. It was the saddest day for the community. I felt like somebody died in the community. When I left, I said, this price is really cheap. I should buy this place. And I called my attorney. I said, I just saw a plant. It's an awesome price. I want to buy it. He said, now, this is the largest food company closing the factory. Here's the largest food company getting out of yogurt category. Who the hell are you? to think that you could do something out of it. If there was something, they could have done it. I said, you're right. I forget about the idea, but the next day, I called him again. So finally, he tried to convince me. He told me, you have a, another big problem. He said, you have no money. Uh, that's not a big problem. Um, You could always figure it out. August 15, 2005, I had a key for this old factory, and I hired five people from that 50 by. I remember the days I was in the campus. I said, Polish cow. What did I do again? How am I going to turn this around?
2: And what he did next, you're about to hear. We're talking about the life of Hamdi Kaya. And this is one great American Dreamer segment. This is our American Stories. More with Hamdi's story after these messages. our American stories and we're back with our American Dreamer series which is always brought to us by the great folks at Job Creators Network. And Job Creators Network is the champion of small business owners. And those small business owners of course trying to turn their businesses into bigger businesses and that is what the American dream is all about. Self-reliance and man living your own dream, starting your own thing and making it happen. And we're on the story of Hamdi Woylakaya And he, of course, is the Chobani yogurt founder and a Turkish immigrant in upstate New York who finds out that Kraft Foods is shutting down and selling their yogurt plant. And he's crazy enough to buy it and enter a space the world's largest food company was getting out of. And crazy enough to dream up the great Greek yogurt brand Chobani, as we said before. Before Hamdi walked into this plant for the first time as its owner... He made sure he did something with the people he'll never forget.
1: Just before we walked in, we took a picture with that five people that I hired first time. Those five people were five of 55 who worked in that plant for 15, 20, uh, 20 years. I have to mention their name because it's very, very important for our Chobani story, and also important that these names, these, these faces, these people, what they do every day is, 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 is what this country is all about. It's Maria who was there for uh, answering calls for 15, 15 years. Rich was uh, a production manager. Mike uh, was the maintenance person who worked there and retired and came back to work. Frank was the wastewater guy. Mustafa is the yogurt maker and myself. This, this, This little town, South Edmiston, very lonely, very lonely road, middle of nowhere, and there's a bar across the street from that plant. It's called Croches. And the people who went to that bar is the bikers with the tattoos and, you know, scary looking. They were nice, but I was scared. (laughs) And this is the environment that we started.
2: This small town where he started, Chabani, had only 1,000 people living there. And Hamdi frequently says that one of the greatest attributes of America is the spirit and the resilience of our small towns. And once they walked into that factory, he and his five employees now had to do something. But what?
1: They're looking at me as if I have the magic answers to these people. And one of them, Mike, he said, so what's now? I said, we're gonna go to the Ace store and we're going to buy some white paints and we're going to paint the walls outside. He said, those walls, hasn't been painted for the last 15 years. Don't you have anything else to worry about? I said, but they don't look good. We need to do something about it. He said, do you have any other plan than painting the walls? I said, no. But my friends, one of the best things I've done in 2005, in summer of 2005, is start painting the wall. I didn't have a lot of answers, and I didn't have any idea, but that summer, we paint those walls best than ever. It's still there. But along the way, I came up with more ideas, I came up with what I am going to do, I start searching. And it reminds me this word that in Turkish, the poet that lived in Turkey, Rumi, says, if you start walking the way, the way appears.
2: Here is one of those moments from Chobani's early days that he does remember. This is after spending two whole years perfecting their yogurt, and many nights sleeping over in the factory. So they could keep working on their product.
1: So here you are. You're, you're working almost two years, all your dreams, all your time, everything you put it into this cup. It's the first time you're shipping to a customer. The customer is in Kosher store in Long Island. It's 200, 200 cases, and me and my sales guy and everybody we packed it in a four-lane filler uh, all that night. And I'm outside. At night, it was about 9 o'clock, and uh, having a cigarette, talking to Kyle, I said, so Kyle, what are we going to do now? He said, well, I guess we're going to go sell sell this thing. And he shipped that product next day to, uh, to the store. The week that I waited was the longest week I can ever remember. Now, somebody's going to sell me end of that week, is you got something good or you some something decent, awesome, or nobody's buying? Because this is the first time that we're going to see what's happening in the real world. So I called the guy, God bless him, the next week, and I said, How are you doing? How's the product is doing? It's a small store. He said, I'll tell you, your packaging is so different, people fix it and they, I'm selling it. I said, is it the same people are buying it, or is it different people are buying it? It's important for me. He said, basically, same people are buying it, and they're telling other people to buy it. So I'm gonna give you another order. That was it's 450 cases. This is a good sign, really good sign. I'm not dancing and you know, um, uh, partying yet, but it's a really encouraging sign.
2: They would sell all of those 450 cases as well, and another store added them. And Hamdi felt like they were now ready for larger distribution.
1: If you start a startup, you know, yogurt or food, you normally go to the natural aisle. I told him, no, let's go to a big, like, shop ride or a chain store. And he says, Hamdi, we have to pay fee to put the product into the shelf. We don't have that kind of money. $20,000, dollars per cup to put into the shelf. So, so we go to the buyer in ShopRite, and then we say, you know, we have four, four or five, strawberry, blueberry, peach, vanilla, and plain, five. So if you want to put five SKUs into your shelf, you know, $200,000. $200, $200,000? We don't have $200,000, but here's what we're going to do. We promise this is going to sell, I said, it's a true story. We promise this is going to sell. Put it into the shelf. Every week, you can cut you know, 10% from this $200,000. So, so the guys like, laughed like hysterically. This must be something that never came up before. And he says, so what if it doesn't sell? We said, we're going to give you the factory. <laughs> <laughs> it's a true story. The guy laughed even further, but they liked, he liked us. He says, okay. <laughs> week later, week or two weeks later, the same guy called. Now, we have five SKUs. Yogurt Isle is dominated by two big brands, Denon and Jenner, you and Denon. It's huge, and not huge, it's good enough, but we are in the right upper corner, five cups hanging right there. I mean, you really have to look at it. But the cups were so different. I sleeved them, you know, the graphic. I did everything for those five cups. So even if you don't pay a lot of attention, when you walk by, you'll see it. Right now, they all copied me. Everything looks similar. But at that time, it was very different. (laughs) So the guy calls two weeks later. He said, I don't know what kind of crap you put into these cups. (laughs) Do not tell me. But I cannot keep it in the shelf. It was an eye-opening. At that moment, I realized that this was not going to be about selling. It was going to be about, can I make it enough? Greatest realization. This is what was going to happen. And that moment, I decided that my next, I don't know how many years, is going to be in the factory. I'm not going anywhere. Because this is about making
2: And he understood that insight It wasn't about selling It was about making And how to get it good How to make a lot of it How to get the price down And this is one, one remarkable American Dreamer story The story of Hamdi Woylakaia The Chobani Yogurt founder One of our American Dreamer stories An American Dreamer series Always brought to us by the great folks at Job Creators Network and nobody champions the work, the plight of small business owners better than the great folks at Job Creators Network. More on this great American story, this great American Dreamers story, after these messages. American Stories, and we continue with a terrific story, a terrific American dreamer's story, Hamdi Walakaya, and his story is remarkable. The founder of Chobani Yogurt, him challenging two giants in the food business, and by the way, usually what happens in these stories is the guy brings up that company to a certain level, and in come the big guys, and they buy it, and then they market it, and they distribute it. Not a case with Chobani. And by the way, as always, these American Dreamer stories are brought to us by the great folks at Job Creators Network. There's no better place, no better institution fighting for small business and small business owners. Fighting the red tape that gets in the way of small business owners. Tax policy that stops small businesses from growing. They're the heartbeat, the lifeblood of America, small business owners. And my goodness, the hurdles they face just trying to stay open and keep their doors open. It's never been tougher. And so Job Creators Network is out there fighting the fight for small business owners all across this great country. And so here's Hamdi in 2014 speaking at an Inc. magazine conference about their wild growth and how they changed the yogurt landscape against all odds.
1: We have gone from 5 people to 3,000 people. We went from like three million few million dollars in... You know, in 2007, sales to over a billion dollars in sales in 2012. We, <laughs> <clears throat> we invested almost $900 million by, by end of 2012 in the factories. We built the world's largest factory in Idaho. I bought a business in Australia. That was my first trip to Australia. I bought the damn thing. And I started a started business there. We sponsored Team USA. And we became the number one brand in the country. And we, we stayed 100% independent until the end of the 2012. This whole thing started from that Saadat Muslim old factory. With one dream, with one product. Like yogurt. It's been around for hundreds of hundreds of years. So, within this time, I have gone through lot of realization but the biggest one was I get to know myself I was this guy I had no idea I was a businessman and I was an entrepreneur or I was a marketer or I was a I can't even speak I didn't know any of these and this is the power of this journey is I think the most important one is what it does to us individually and then what it does to surroundings after—it's—it's—it's it's, it's amazing. It's—it's it's nothing like it out there. So I feel extremely lucky. I wouldn't change this for anything. Would I want to eat pizza for three—you know—breakfast, lunch, and dinner every day for five years again? No. <laughs> but I'm glad i have gone through this. So I, from the day one. You know, people ask, what was your reason of starting? What was your purpose? What was your mind? What was in this? And if anybody answers these questions to you, boom, 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 it's, and you know it. You know, we don't have to. In the end, it's like, ah, I want to I climb this mountain. I want to cross this ocean. Whatever that is, it's just like you, you throw yourself into a journey. And during this time, you find your reason, your purpose, what your plan is, and all else. But you have to, I found out that you have to find a way to elevate yourself, to be above common sense. Because we cannot do what we have done with the mirror or with the glasses of common sense. What they teach in the schools, what the report says, what the market research says. We cannot do it with that view. We have to think something differently. And that is usually an emotional shift. And that emotional shift, Comes from passion, from personal reasons, from personal problems. So, when you're elevated, then you're not looking at opportunity or problem or a dream from a common, uh, common perspective. If somebody would tell me when I was painting that wall, it says, "Andy, five years from now, you know these five people, it'll be about three thousand. This factor you have here." that has four lanes, it's gonna have 14 lanes. You're gonna have two million cases coming out of this track. You see that bar out there? It'll be wiped out. You're gonna build 160,000 square feet warehouse, and you're gonna build a million square warehouse in Idaho, and guess what? You'll still be you know, independent all that stuff. I will look at them guys and say, why have you been smoking? In a common sense, that's not possible. Because buying a filler, installing it, it takes 12 months. One filler, if you order today, by the time you install it, it takes twelve months. How are you gonna build fourteen fillers when you have only one million dollars to work with and grow the business to a billion dollars? It's not it's not possible. But that's common sense. But when you got in it, you don't even realize what you're doing it. It just keeps happening.
2: It's true, and he later said, By the time you look back you say, My God, how far we've come. Hamdi says his story could only have happened in America. He's enjoyed Chobani's successes, but he says that what's most important, what he's relished the most, is how it's enabled him to help others. The company gives 10% of all of their profits to charity, and yet it's not the actual amount that matters to him, but what it produces, a very simple but powerful thing to him, bringing a smile to the beneficiaries' faces, an intangible feeling that money just can't measure, and that they can then pass on to even more people. Only a year after founding Chobani, he began intentionally hiring refugees who were escaping tyrannical regimes around the world, and now employs more than 300 of them. More recently, he discovered that only 1% of those seeking refuge were resettled by the UN. He blames government for decades of incompetence that created this crisis and is pleading with the American business community, those who have proven to be effective ...to join him in employing refugees. And he says, once they're employed, well, once they have that job, they're no longer refugees. It's why he's committing over one half of his $1.69 billion fortune to the refugee cause. And in 2016, Hamdi decided to look even closer to home. He owns 100% of Chobani, but has freely decided to give away 10% of the ownership to his employees a potential windfall if the company is sold or goes public of several hundred thousand dollars for each employee and millions for those with him at the very start. Here's Hamdi speaking about why he did this.
1: It's been my dream. I'd like to get back to them and say, you and this community and this country has been so great to us and I'd like to return that favor back to you.
2: And here's Chabani employee number six, Terry Edmonds, speaking to NBC News about it and crying, and crying more about what this journey has meant to all of them, and just being appreciated. That more than the money itself. I think about
3: how little we started and how hard all these people worked
2: to, to
3: bring this to what we have.
2: And I'm very proud. And we'll close our celebration of Hamdi's life with the closing of his commencement address before the university he didn't have enough money to graduate from, the University of Albany.
1: I didn't care what the others told me about me. I didn't care what they told me, how crazy I was, how weak I was, how much less English I had. didn't matter. Because when I closed my eyes, I remember... How my mother saw me. I was her son. And I was the best.
2: And what a way to close things out. What a memory to keep in, deep in your mind. The mother's love. What an American Dreamer story. Hamdi Roy founder of Chobani, part of our American Dreamers series, as always brought to us by the great folks at Job Creators Network. This is Our American Stories. Our American Stories, and now it's time for our Voices of Main Street segment brought to us by the great folks at Job Creators Network. There's nothing like seeing a small business succeed. And when a small business can save a town, oh my goodness, that's even better. And today we're talking about a family business that did just that. It became an internet sensation, revived a dying hobby, and brought new life to the small town of Hamilton, Missouri. Quilting involves sewing large pieces of fabric together to make a thick, and comfortable blanket, a hobby that 21 million people nationwide enjoy. Missouri Star Quilt Company started off to stave off boredom and turned into a global quilting sensation. Shadrach, one of our Hillsdale interns, has the details.
4: While driving through the southeastern United States, you might happen upon Hamilton, Missouri, the birthplace of famed department store founder J.C. Penney. Ten years ago, Hamilton was a shrinking small town with little prospects and a crumbling infrastructure. That was until one woman changed everything.
0: Hi, I'm Jenny from the Missouri Star Quilt Company, and I do online tutorials. There are over 300 of them. We are sitting here in our creative room. Uh, In our town here, we have 13 shops. They are all fabric-specific. So when you go into a shop, it's going to have solid fabric or floral fabric or Civil War fabric, and every shop is decorated around it. You can eat here. You can sleep here. It's just a great place to be.
4: That was Jenny Down, the face of the Missouri Star Quilt Company in Hamilton, Missouri. People describe Hamilton, Missouri as Disney World for quilters, and when you walk those streets, you can't help but believe them. Main Street is lined with cars, quilt shops, restaurants, and people from all over the world and all over the country hoping to meet their favorite YouTube celebrity. Mrs. Doan's online quilting tutorials have been viewed by millions of people all around the world, and every year, thousands of them make the trek to a small town in the middle of rural Missouri to meet her. But Mrs. Doan never set out to be famous. She didn't even start out as a professional quilter.
0: I used to be a costumer. My background is in musical theater. Uh, When you make a costume, it doesn't matter how many months you spend gluing on sequins. It's got to look good from 20 feet out, hold together for two weeks, and somebody's going to use it one time, maybe two times. But when you make a quilt, it doesn't matter how beautiful or how old the fabric is, or anything like that, but that quilt is going to be cherished for generations. There's longevity to it. The older our quilts are, the more we cherish them, worry about how we're going to take care of them, what are we going to do, how do we get that spot out, all those kinds of things. Even if I make a quilt for you, you don't like it, and you give it to the goodwill, someone's going to go along and go, I can't believe I found this.
4: But how did this all start? How did Mrs. Doan go from making costumes for musicals to the single most famous quilter alive? Turns out, it was a family effort. Led by one of her sons, Alan.
0: It was 2008. Market crashed. My kids wanted to... They got worried about what we were going to do because we lost our retirement in the crash. And so um, one day I went to pick up a quilt. Uh, well, Alan said to me, he, you know, he was asking, he says, what are you doing? I said, I'm going to pick up a quilt. He said, what quilt is it? And I said, I don't know. It's been there like a year. And he's like, is that a thing? You know, is there... Does it, Are people really... Are there just that few of them? And I said, no, they're just really backed up because there's a lot of quilters and people like to do it. He said, do you think you could do that? And I said, well, I could try, you know. And so they talked together. You know, long story short, they they, wanted to, uh, they decided to buy me a quilt machine and came to the house. It was too big for our house, so we had to buy a building. The building actually cost less than the machine did. So now we had this little business in this little shop over here and I practiced on all my tops until I felt comfortable and we started machine quilting for people and Alan is a computer guy so when he he bought the machine he started looking at what quilting was doing online and it had not yet made the jump online and he came and asked me one day if I wanted to do tutorials online and I said sure what's a tutorial and he said well I want you to teach people to quilt online and uh, and I said how will people even find it and he said we're going to put it on YouTube. And I said, isn't that where those crazy teenagers put their videos? And he's like, yes, but it's going to be our center for learning. And I was like, uh, nobody's going to go look on the computer to learn how to do something. You know, I couldn't see it. He insisted it was true. And so we started doing videos online. People started watching people that then called and said, Hey, that fabric you used, you know, uh, I really want some of that. And I would say, well, it's mine. It's my fabric. You can't use it, have it, you know, and they'd be like, well, I want some. And I said to the kids, maybe we should think about doing this. And we have over 300 tutorials now and maybe, you know, I don't know how many over, but I know over. And a new one comes every Friday, every single Friday, there's a new quilt, a new idea for them. And everything I do is quick and easy. Probably for most people, they're much more visual learners than they realize. And if they can see it, they can do it. So that's basically in a nutshell, how that all began.
4: Where Mrs. Doan is the face of Missouri star, Alan is the brains. He helped make the Missouri star dream a reality. And along the way, he learned the ups and downs of running a small business.
5: When you start, you know, everybody's in the group or the picture. It's like, we're doing it. We're doing it. It's going to be amazing. You know, it's the same as like you you get married and like your photos on your wedding day are like, this is the best. And then fast forward five years. and It's like, no, we're still really happy. But we know that this, you know, it doesn't come free. It takes some work. Or we're having a baby, look, it's right there. And then three years in, you're like, no, we got a baby. And uh, I'm happy, I'm absolutely happy. But this baby, this baby takes some work. You know, the pictures of us in this warehouse five years later are like, you know, we are not the happy, lethal, you know, 20 year olds that we were when we started this thing. We are happy, we are happy, but like we know that it doesn't come free, right? We, we understand the cost.
4: Through the efforts of Alan and Mrs. Doan, Missouri Star has grown beyond a family business. They employ over 400 people from the surrounding area, spending a large portion of their profits on improvements to local infrastructure. They've renovated buildings, opened three restaurants, painted murals, and built sidewalks all out of pocket. Missouri Star spends so much time renovating that they even have their own full-time five-man construction crew, when we were talking to him, Alan explained the joys of growing up alongside the community as their business grew, not just growing as a business.
5: So a lot of the satisfaction I get is over these community members that I, I've known and loved forever and watching them, you know, if they if, if they leave here today, they go and they say, yeah, I helped this company grow from 50 to 400 employees. Here's what I did. Here's how yeah, I ran the warehouse. I know how to do that. So like hire me and I'll come do it for you, right? Like they're, they're, they've they're developed a skill that's worth Markedly more than what they could have come in with. So that's where a lot of my emotional connection to the, to the local people has come. And the pride that I take in this town. I mean, I'm walking down the street with my wife last night. I'm just like, I love this place. Like, I love that, that there's great food to eat. I love that people come here and smile all day. And that, like, you know, we got these beautiful murals up and around. Like, this town is getting way, way better.
4: As we spent the day in Hamilton, Alan's words began to make more and more sense. We walked through quilt store after quilt store, searched for cuts on their custom-made iPad kiosks, were greeted by several enthusiastic employees, and enjoyed burgers served on classy little slabs of wood. Everything seemed less rural Missouri and more big West Coast city. However, a trip to Hamilton cannot be complete without the most important part of the experience, the fans. When we met Mrs. Doan and tried to find a location to interview her, A second would not pass without somebody recognizing her and asking for a picture. It felt like traveling with a movie star, except that movie star was a quilt maker in rural Missouri. While we were waiting to interview Alan, we met a particularly passionate fan. The first thing we noticed was his hat, which was covered in Pokemon pins.
2: My
6: name is Manny Caldero, and I'm from Los Angeles, California, and I am a quilter. I'm an award-winning quilter. And I belong to the Wandering Foot Quilt Guild in Arcadia, California. And I'm the only male in the guild. And I'm third vice president in charge of fundraising and thinking outside the box. And actually, I'm, I'm on the hunt for Jenny. I want to actually meet her before I go back to L.A.
4: Manny had traveled all the way from Los Angeles to meet his quilting hero. This man was so invested in Missouri Star and what the Do's were doing that he traveled nearly 2,000 miles to see it. We asked some employees how far people traveled to visit Hamilton, and the furthest they could remember was Australia. That's halfway across the world to visit the quilting capital of the United States. Mrs. Doan believed that all of this travel was far from a coincidence.
0: So one of the the fun things for me is that um, since we've kind of taken this on, there are a lot of communities that say, why don't you come to our community and do this? And I'm like, you can do this for your community. People our age, my age... Um, we are. We have more time, and we drive to see things. My husband and I drove three hours to see the world's largest pecan. It was concrete, but it got us there. Now, um, people drive to see the world's largest ball of string. If everything, if when people got there, it be, it was the center place for string cheese and stringed instruments and stringed art and everything macrame and everything embroidery and yarn was in that town, and that town became the center for string. It would be huge. People would be coming from all over to go there. And I just kind of feel like uh, that's what we've done a little bit here. What people don't realize there's, you know, there's always people who don't love change. But what they don't realize is there's always change. You're either growing or dying. This was not at all our plan to begin with. The plan was to keep mother and dad out of their basement.
4: And now, many years and quilts later, Hamilton, Missouri has more quilt shops than any other town in the United States. What started as a hobby has redefined the quilting business and revitalized a small town. A far cry from trying to keep busy during the recession.
2: And what a great story. Thanks for bringing that to us, Shadrach. And thanks to Hillsdale College for loaning their young, talented people to us for the summer. And what a story, folks. Jenny and her family, 400 employees. One small town changed forever. This is the power of small business to change lives And, well, we love the folks at Job Creators Network who continually try and improve the lives of small business to fight back regulations and taxes so small business owners can grow their businesses and impact the lives around them. You can learn more about Job Creators Network at defendmainstreet.com. The Missouri Star Quilt Company story, here on Our American Stories. American stories and we came across a great story in the Wall Street Journal and the headline was mascots are getting a hall of fame and it's making Benny the Bull emotional and so when you get a headline like that you got to dig in and the Wall Street Journal does so many really great Americana stories on their front page that's the wallstreetjournal.com go there and subscribe wsj.com and joining us well, we had to talk to David Raymond because, well, he's the guy behind all this. And David, thanks so much for joining us.
7: It's my pleasure. It's great to be here. And any time that we're talking about furry fun, um, I've I got to be a part of it.
2: Well, David, to start with, you were the original Philly fanatic from 1978 to 1993. And bless your heart, if I could be any mascot anywhere, I would have wanted to be the Philly fanatic. What fun watching him or her. Was there ever a her do his or her well, thing?
7: Yeah, yeah, there actually is. There, there's uh, Phoebe, who is the fanatic's mother, and Phyllis, who is, um, let's just call her his special
2: interest. <laughs> uh-huh. Very nice. And what was that? How did you audition for that job? How did you prepare for that job? Is there, is there a way to prepare for the role the way an actor would prepare for a role?
7: Well, it's it's funny, you know, with what we do with our business, you know, we we find and performers, train performers, we place performers a full time job. Um, uh, we we help the um, uh, the Los Angeles Clippers fill their new performer position, um, and and we do it quite frequently. So there's a real process now. But back when I started, I, I was the guy that was dumb enough to say yes to having a 300 pound green furry Muppet entertain the same fans that booed and the Easter Bunny. So um, I was low man on the totem pole. I was an intern from in 76 and 77 with the Phillies. And 78, when they created what looked like a very bad idea on paper, um, they needed a few things, and one of them was somebody to commit to stay for all the games. And I, I was doing that. I'm a big Phillies fan, um, I very good friends with the Carpenter family who, who owned the ball club before Bill Giles and his group purchased it. And, um, you know, it was a, it was a dream for me to be there as an intern. I, and I was doing the worst jobs you can imagine. So I figured, you know, so what I figured this thing will last for a couple of weeks and, and it'll be panned in the media. And, but I can always say I was the guy that first put on that crazy costume that they, that they threw away. So, uh, so there was no plan. There was no preparation. Frankly, I had to go to the Phillies and say, what is it that you want me to do? And, and they said, go out and have fun. And when I went, when I went running out of the room, after they told me that, because I thought, wow, this is great. I'm getting paid to have fun. They screamed at me, G-rated fun. <laughs> cause
3: they,
7: were, they just told a college student to go have a good time, and that was his prime directive. So, um, you know, no, no real plan. It, it, we, were just, um, it, we were just throwing stuff up on the wall, and this was one of those things that stuck.
2: And what a beautiful thing, and what a beautiful prerogative to be given. I mean, you had a clean slate. You could just about do anything you wanted to do in front of thousands and thousands of people, and you got to hang out in a ballpark.
7: Oh yeah and and what was even more exciting for somebody my age, you know, 20 years old at the time, um was that, you know, I was a huge uh baseball fan and I was a huge Phillies fan. I got to mingle and and mix and get to know um the the Phillies players and and had some still have some long standing friendships with them. Uh and then met the the visiting players even though they didn't know who I was, but they, they knew who the fanatic was and I it was like living the dream and And actually, for a little bit pretending uh like I was a member of a major league baseball team, or I was like a player so so that was the you know the icing on the cake
2: it was and you got to, you got to see some pretty great teams there were some really great philadelphia philly team Phillies teams during that time, weren't there
7: well, it was really the beginning of um- un- until two thousand and eight um it, it, their run it was the beginning of the Phillies first real sustained uh Success on the field. So they had the year before; they had made it, uh, um, you know, into the playoffs, but got beat uh, by the Dodgers, and um, our, our hopes were dashed once again. And when the fanatic was created, it started that movement into not only uh, winning, um, you know, a National League Championship, but uh, winning a World Series. So, yep. so it was really a wonderful time. Uh, through my tenure, they. They made it to three World Series. They they won one and, and had a number of, uh, um, you know, those National League championships. So it was really, really a, a, the best time uh, to have you know, been part of the team. Hey,
2: did sure. you get a ring? Did you get a ring? I, I did, actually. I got three well, yes. rings. I, I,
7: I have a World Series ring from 80, and I have the two losers rings from, from 83 and 93. And, uh, you know, I, I do a lot of public speaking and and I do meet and greets afterwards and people just love to come up and see those rings, try them on, take selfies. So it, it, that has been a really fun thing for me to stay connected with the Philadelphia fans that way. So
2: you've had a big fight with your wife. You're really bummed out or you're just hung over. How does the Philly fanatic get psyched up and just get it done?
7: Well, you know, it's, it really is about the power of fun. It, you know, I went through, uh, you know, the I went through my marriage training program, like a lot of people could can relate to out there, and uh, I was devastated when my first marriage didn't make it, and my my mother unfortunately passed away when she was 59 from brain cancer, and those both of those times were when at the height of my work as the fanatic, and when I was going through those difficult things, I times I thought I'm not going to be able to do this. And what I found out very quickly was working in costume was the, the perfect distraction. And I discovered people were drawn to the fanatic and are drawn to mascots because it's this powerful fun. It's, it's the distraction of silly entertainment that for the moment that you're involved, you forget all your problems. So as the performer, I had the ability to be somebody completely different. So I had that distraction continuously or any time that I wanted it. So my job became one of the healthiest functions uh, for my emotion and my, you know, my, you know, for my, my mental activity. You it was bet. The best
2: thing you bet. By. And by the way, I might add that it's a relief and release for a lot of people that go to the park, too. David, I think that's why so many people love sports, a distraction from the ordinary burdens and strains and stresses of regular life. We're talking to David Raymond. And by the way, I love your title, The Emperor of Fun and Games at Raymond Entertainment Group. And he's also the founder of the Mascot Hall of Fame. We'll get into that in a bit after these messages. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Story. our American Stories talking to David Raymond. And we're talking about mascots. And by the way, people love their mascots. We're going to get into it in a little bit about college mascots, professional mascots, the variety, the full, the full scope. Some of them funny, some of them serious, everything from wolverines to blue hens. And we're going to cover them all. But a little bit more about you, David, and, and this idea of a Hall of Fame. Um, when did it come to you and what were the difficulties in bringing this to light?
7: Well, it was like like a lot of great ideas. Uh, it wasn't mine. That's the first thing, uh, I, I wish it was completely mine, but it was actually my my employee Chris Bruce uh, had come to me after the um, the sausages were attacked in Milwaukee. If you remember that episode where Randall Simon hit one of the uh, one of the famous sausages over the head as it ran by the dugout uh, in Miller Park that day and it became a big news story i was getting calls from all the major uh, um news brands cbs nbc and on uh, fox uh, npr they all called me wanted to know what we thought of this this mascot abuse and we decided to do a mascot march on the city of philadelphia to introduce a bill of rights for mascots as a <laughs> kind of a silly fun promotion and we got so much media coverage we did it the second year and that was 2003 2004 and in 2005, Chris came up to me in the office and said, hey, this is the time for us to have a Mascot Hall of Fame. We've talked about it before. You know, let's leverage all this fun we've had. And that's what we did. And we inducted that first year, of course, the fanatic, the Phoenix gorilla and the, the famous chicken from San Diego. Yep, the three arguably the three characters that changed, you know, the genre, the genre of mascots. And uh, and we had again tremendous success. The owner of the Phoenix Suns actually came all the way. From, he's a billionaire, Robert Sarver, came to Philadelphia to introduce the Phoenix Gorilla. And and I knew when he showed up, I said this is really tapping into a real passion. People love and believe in their mascot brands like they're real. And when they get an honor like this, they take it seriously. Um, so from that point forward, we we've inducted 17 total uh, mascots including um, 10 Pro and 7 Colleges. And we did a number of live inductions, both uh, and also in front of the, the inductees' crowds. And the city of Whiting called me about four years ago and said, we want you here. We're the silly little wacky city that could. And and it's a perfect, you know, entertainment piece for us. We're building an entertainment complex. We've, we've built a beautiful uh, lakefront on Lake Michigan. They're, it's only 30 miles south, uh east of Chicago and um, in Northwest Indiana. And it was perfect. You know, we went there and we met with the mayor and sure enough, here we are groundbreaking. The, the bulldozers just dug the hole the other day. And uh, in 2018 early, we're going to open the doors to the mascot hall of fame.
2: Well, I love some of the puns here. There's a lot of physical education happening there and the <laughs> yeah. fur is coming. And, yeah. but the thing is, it's not just all fun and games in the article in the wall street journal article. I'm going to read just a touch to you because it's so good. Barry Anderson, who performed for more than a decade at, Chica- at Chicago Bulls games as Benny the Bull, who isn't a member of the hall, choked up when simply talking about the prospect. I get very emotional about the work, said Mr. Anderson, who is known for his acrobatic trampoline dunks during timeouts and firing T-shirts into the crowd using a bull zuka. Benny the Bull and Tommy Hawk, the feathery frontman for the NHL Chicago Blackhawks, are considered strong candidates for the Hall this year, says David Raymond. And and what I love about this is you're doing the same sort of marketing and lead-up that the NFL Hall of Fame does, that the Baseball Hall of Fame does. And, and how's that working? Is the sports world and the media picking up on this each year? It, it, it
7: is. We, and that's what we were taught all the way back in 2003 when we did that mascot march. Anytime you get a group of mascots together, it looks funny, so B roll footage looks great. Um, it 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 is funny. Um, it, it it's it's a perfect story as a kicker at the end of a broadcast, and and we just continue to get that type of excitement. However, it's become even more emotional and connected because we're in the midst of a of a popular vote right now, where you can go on mascothalloffame.com and vote on the current ballot. Which, by the way, fast forward does include Benny the Bull and Tommy Hawk, uh, as well as Slugger. Stuff from Orlando, Harry Dog from Georgia, um, and and the Penn State Nittany Lions. So you can vote for any of those right now, and it's it's just built tremendous passion and emotion with the constituents and the fans and and alumni and uh, and faculty um, and people in those organizations. So um, it's been really relatively easy to do. I, I mean, the Phillies just gave us the largest grant uh, that any Major League Baseball team has done. Uh, we're going to other all other major league organizations and asking for philanthropic support. It's, it's a nonprofit organization, yep. um, and we're, we're teaching STEM and STEAM principles to elementary school kids as the backdrop of the educational piece to probably what would be best described as the Disney of mascots. It's going to be an unbelievable environment for families, and people want to come back again and again. It's just really a wonderful um, wonderful facility.
2: And we're talking to David Raymond, and com is where you can go. He also runs Raymond Entertainment Group. They're in the serious business of developing and creating full-character branding programs and mascots for sports teams, colleges, and universities, and also corporations. And actually, uh, our American stories, we're going to need a mascot, too, so we'll have to talk about that offline. <laughs> you know, one of the funny stories I like is, my goodness, people are really politicking for this, like the Oscars. Jazz Bear from the Utah Jazz, bas- Jazz basketball team submitted a video in which Utah Senator Orrin Hatch extolled the mascot's significance in the community, and the video ends with a camera panning out to reveal Jazz Bear polishing the senator's shoes. That's really good. I love it, this it stuff.
7: Is, it is good, and you, and you know, just Lee, it's interesting with the you know with the political climate we're in with. Um, you know, with all kinds of um, push and pull, whatever side that you're on, um, and some nastiness for sure, you know, maybe the end of some political correctness that that cuts down on creativity. And when you see a guy like Orrin Hatch willing to, you know, have a little bit of fun in a video that's a little less reverent, and he does it because it's part of a mascot routine – that is what mascots do. It, 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 we step off of our perch for a minute and say, yeah, I can have a little bit of fun. And if, it can, if we can get somebody like Orrin Hatch to poke some fun at himself, you know, we're, we're – I mean, I as the fanatic, I, I ran into uh, Ted Kennedy and Ethel Kennedy and, and, and worked with all kinds of celebrities and, and politicians. And every single one of them stops for a moment, gets a hug and a kiss and a high-five from, from a
2: mascot. So exactly. it, it works.
7: It really is powerful
2: exactly let 's talk about some of the some of the work you do developing mascots and the like what What goes into that? Somebody calls you up and says you know we're we 're thinking about you know something and i mean how, do, how does how does somebody pitch you? How do you do your work? How do you do your business well the first
7: the first thing that happened, I mean we use we use our backstory as being experts in the business in thirty eight years of, of being successful that 's how we get people to us, but when they start with us, they all want to know what it looks like, and we tell them quickly what it looks like is about fourth or fifth on the priority list. The first thing that you need to do is you need to plan for success, you know, like any other business venture. But second, the most important thing that you do is it's about storytelling. So we tell all of our clients to go back and try to develop the concept of a story that connects with their their organization, their their alumni, their fans, their community, and build a story that automatically will have buy-in from those audience uh, touch points uh Disney taught that you know Disney said you know when Bambi's mother gets killed in the first few minutes uh, of that movie, you think my gosh this is a this is a cartoon movie done by Disney, and here's a you know a mother gets murdered in front of its uh, of its young. Uh, how can that be Disney? Well, Disney got you to care about the characters, so for us it's storytelling and making a flawed character that people can relate to and that they'll care about if you do those things you will have a wonderful, powerful character brand.
2: And by the way, it's not always fun in games. You know, a lot of these mascots, like the great, you know, characters, the old cartoon characters like Wiley Coyote, I mean, they have a little devilish side and playful side to them, and sometimes there are even some fights. Talk about that line that the mascot has to draw between being too nice and being a little devilish.
7: Well, you're you're right. I mean, tempers flare uh, when there's passion. So I've seen more mascot, actual real mascot fights in the collegiate environment because of of how passionate and important those games are. Um, But, you know, there's occasional fan that's had a few uh, adult beverages that decides that he doesn't like the mascot, uh, you know, putting his arm around his girlfriend. (laughs) Um, So it's a sixth sense that you have or it's common sense that you have to try to keep your wits about you. And, and, and one thing is to make sure you take breaks before you get tired, because when you get tired, you make bad decisions. But it's a dangerous environment. I mean, there's been a lot of uh, mascot injuries. So so it's not the easiest job in the world. you got to be safe and take care of yourself and, and use your common sense.
2: You bet. And when we come back, we're going to run through a whole bunch of mascots, some of the favorites here on the show, and we're going to tell a mascot story about Ole Miss mascot, Colonel Reb who was sort of put in a lockbox and then their new mascot had to come in and, well, nobody likes the new mascot. And what's it like to be a mascot that's not loved? That's got to be a bummer. This is Our American Stories, the mascot hall of fame. More after these messages. segment with david raymond the founder of the mascot hall of fame he also runs raymond entertainment group and that's RaymondEG.com. and by the way he has dave raymond's mascot boot camp which alex should go to too and see what that's like uh we want to go through some great mascots now and uh we want to tell a great mascot story as well about old mrs mascot but let's run through the two different types of mascots. They're, they're kind in the costumes, sort of the entertainment mascots, and there are those beloved prized animals. Um, talk about some of the great mascots you don't have at the Hall of Fame because they're actually living, or do you?
7: Well, you know, it's, it is it is a discussion we've had. We have a criteria, believe it or not. Even even though our tongue's firmly planted in our cheeks, we, we do have a process. And the criteria does state that it needs to be a costumed character. So it would uh based on that criteria it eliminates uh either the the live animals or some of the human beings. Um but we think that there's going to be a place for those types of characters. We think there's going to be a place for the actual performers which we're not talking about highlighting yet. Um you know and and certainly some of the human characters. Uh, um you know Max Packin was the one who started well Al Shack before him and Mal pa- Max Packin they were the first human characters that were somewhat like clowns that entertained during baseball games, uh, in the fifties. Um, and Max, you know, continued on until, um, you know, the late seventies. Uh, so, so they, they kind of set the tone for that, that I think the chicken came after that, but great animal like, like Ugga for the university of Georgia. Um, and Harry dog happens to be the, the, the costume character that's on the ballot this year, but Ugga, you know there's a long line of these revered uh, bulldogs that are actually buried uh, right uh, as part of the stadium complex where people go as a pilgrimage to see the graves of the Uggas. I mean it's wonderful love and passion. Uh, war eagle for Auburn is an, is another example of a of an animal mascot and, and there are there are many um, that are used in the case of stirring up the crowd or, or getting this great passion um behind those and they are usually combined with a um you know with a costume character a- as well um florida state was an example you brought up where where they have the chief that comes out and puts the spear into the ground at the 50 yard line and, and i mean you've never heard a stadium erupt any louder. than I never than he heard any that.
2: sound like that in my life. And I thought to be that chief just once it and come onto a stadium and do that. Wow.
7: Phenomenal. And, yep. and, you know, and, and it's a skilled person who can ride a horse and the horse is beautiful. And, 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 and I think it's a wonderful reflection, um, you know, of that, uh, of that community that has agreed, uh, that they appreciate that type of reverence that, uh, Florida state gives them. And and that's why they were not struck down by the NCAA's uh, requirement to do so, because, um, you know, that that Indian uh, tribe had had said this is something that's reverent and revered. And, and we appreciate that type of illustration. Yep. So so it works. I mean, it, you know, political correctness aside, there's times when. These things work because of the pure passion and understanding of the fan
2: base. You bet. And so let's rip through, and I know you can't be partial in these matters, but talk about some of the, 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 the great characters through history and up to the present uh, in college and in pro sports, uh, and, and particularly which sports do the best job at this, and which sports have the most mascots. Is football? Does football do a better job? Does baseball uh, do a better job? Which sport has the most mascots?
7: Well, I, I would I would say that the, the the one organization top to bottom that appreciates it, that stewards mascot brands, uh, that merchandises mascot brands the best is the NBA, um, and it, and I appreciate the understanding from the New York office. They 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 actually give an award out to the best NBA mascot of the year, uh, and they send people out to watch the NBA environment and. Uh, game ops and entertainment, they give them awards for each of those. And then and the, every year the mascot, the NBA gives uh, one of the mascots that title. Uh, so I, so I really appreciate what the NBA does. I think the lowest on the scale of those uh, um, of all of those items would be the NHL or maybe even soccer. And that's in part because the culture and the history of those sports has never been, um, I guess the best way to describe it, has never been fond of the concept of a mascot being powerful some of them have them, and some of them do them do them well in the NHL, but for the most part, the culture of hockey and the culture of soccer coming over from Europe makes it difficult for mascots to be successful. Now, I say that with the fact that we are actually working with Manchester City over in the U.K. to work on their character brands and make them stronger. So there are some exceptions. I think in the, in the history of, of mascots, I think the collegiate sector is the one um, that has created characters that maybe don't look the best in terms of a costume, but have the most support because of, of the passion. So virtually every single college, you know, you, from Alabama and big Al all the way to the, the, the banana slugs. I mean, you've got, or yep. the, or the, or the artichokes, believe it or not with their football team has the word chokes on the side of their helmet, yep. which, the, which their, their coach quipped, it's difficult to recruit. For a team, when you <laughs> nickname is a joke, so so I, I really think that across the board there will always be an illustration of a great character that's been branded well, and then at the same time there are characters that probably should not have even been conceived. Uh, you know, Puffy the Taco comes to mind out in San Antonio for minor league baseball. Um, so, so I really think from a professional standpoint, the NBA is the best. The collegiate sector, I think has the most history and passion and and they celebrate all of that so if you go to the university of kansas um you will see the story of the of the original baby jay that was really built in somebody's basement yep. uh, a young young lady who was a big fan built baby jay and they have the original baby jay costume that she built in a giant case so so it, it's kind of all over the map um but i think what remains is the passion um, and the celebration of, of organizations that people uh, love and,
3: and,
2: and
7: will revere.
2: It's so true. Here at Ole Miss, Colonel Reb was really revered for many years. I, I think a fo- f- few folks in the faculty said that it was offensive, that some people took offense, though it was never really proven. And uh, time and time again, people would do polling, and no one found it offensive. It looked a lot like Colonel Sanders. But they just put it in a lockbox. And then they had people vote, and no one wanted to vote. And next thing you know, there's this black bear that started running around the stadium. And, David, you have to see it because no one gives him a high five. And he he hides half the time in the big football and basketball games. He hides because the fans don't like him. And there's nothing worse than being a mascot who's not loved at home games, David. I'm thinking I would take pills before I... Well,
7: Lee, listen, this is perfect because, you know, I'm the expert. I'm the high-paid consultant, yep. so I would say this: it's not a good idea to create a, ba- a mascot that nobody likes.
2: <laughs> <laughs> it's pretty much a bad idea. <laughs> right. And last, just the last thought: the mascot boot camp. Describe it. We got about a minute left for you. Uh, describe what goes on at that boot camp.
7: It, it's really it started for serious performers that wanted to get better at their craft, and we treat it very much like an acting class. And there's some there's enormous. Uh, similarities to what you would do as an actor. Uh, you know, you have to know who you're portraying and what their attitudes are. Um, but what it's grown into is is actually us starting to develop fantasy mascot camps for people who always say, man, I would love to be the fanatic. And for a day of training, uh, and then we find an event with costumes and let these, uh, and some are uh, adults into their 60s, and some are as young as seven years old. Um, and we, we teach them f- how to be safe and how to have fun, and then we put them in costumes and take them to an event. And when people come out of that, they, they tell you, like I did the first time I did The Fanatic, that's the greatest thing I've ever done. Um, never had more fun in my life. Um, you know, some some people are dealing with, with physical maladies like um, like autism, and and we make them happy too. So, so oh, David, I have boot I boot have so many
2: to. physical and mental maladies and I want to be the Philly fanatic. So, I want to come to the boot camp and I want to take you up on that. That would be nothing would make me more thrilled than to go out in front of an audience and be the fanatic. I've been talking to David Raymond and he's the founder of the Mascot Hall of Fame and you can go to mascothalloffame.com. Also Raymond Entertainment Group, that's raymondeg.com. David Raymond, thanks so much for joining us. Thankfully, I loved it. You bet. And this is, again, Our American Stories. We love sports. We love mascots. It's our American stories, and we've been talking about mascots. Because of a terrific piece in the Wall Street Journal about the mascot Hall of Fame. And there's nothing more American than sports and the way we well, the way we put so much of our energy and passion into it. Some people think it's silly. I think it's just fantastic. And David Raven had joined us for the last few segments, and he's the founder of the Mascot Hall of Fame. And it was himself the original Philly fanatic. Of the Philadelphia Phillies. Now we're going to bring you one of the other mascots mentioned in that article in the Wall Street Journal, the man behind another legendary mascot known as Clutch the Bear of the Houston Rockets. And joining us now is Robert Bodwin. Thank you for joining us. Oh, thanks for having me on, guys. I really appreciate it. Uh, you bet. And should we call you the artist formerly known as Clutch?
6: Yeah, com, the, the artist formerly known as clutch.com, com. I answer to all these names and all these websites. Excellent. So I love prefer. it.
2: I love it. <laughs> <laughs> so tell us how you got to be clutch. How did this happen?
6: You know, I think my story is very similar to a lot of professional mascots. You know, there's only about 125 guys nationwide that do this full time for a living and I think the vast majority would kind of say that they fell into it. Uh, it's not like you set out as a child uh, to be a mascot a performer uh, as a profession. Um, I didn't even know it was a profession when I started doing it in high school and then got to Delaware at the university. I grew up in the suburbs of Philly, did it for the Wissahickon High School. I was the Trojan. Um, I wore a, My face showed, and I wore body armor and painted my face and wore a kilt. And then when I got to college, I started the mascot there, the University of Delaware Blue Hen, uh, UD character in 1993, and just kind of met some cheerleaders freshman year, told them I did it in high school, and they said, yeah, you should try out. Uh, so I did, and I-, I won the role, did it in, in ho- high school or college, and then started to realize that there's guys that did this full-time year-round as a profession, uh, and that's kind of when I started aspiring to do it. Uh, met Dave Raymond, that you mentioned earlier, who uh, – has been on your program. He was the original fanatic. He had just retired when I started the character at Delaware, but his father was our football coach, Tubby Raymond, and uh, Dave was on the sidelines all the time. So I kind of looked up to Dave as a uh, trailblazer and, uh, you know, kind of a founder of the profession. Uh, and, uh, then I kind of realized that people do do this and, uh, started auditioning, uh, for jobs come, uh, the summer after my junior year and won the Rockets audition in 1995. And, uh, kind of went to school to be an accountant, but came out wearing fur.
3: Unbelievable. uh,
6: Spent spent 21 years at the Rockets. Uh, and I gotta be honest with you, um, I by far, this career by far exceeded my wildest dreams. I, you know, I first got into it to kind of be funny and goof around and be center of attention in a costume and that license to kind of break the rules of social engagement, invade people's space and, uh, improv. But in the time that I've spent here, I've gotten to do so much more with it. We've done 1,750 school shows in front of 1.2 million Houston youth. I did a school show last year. A teacher came up to me at the end of it and said, man, that show was even better the second time around. And I said, oh, were you a teacher at the school uh, you know, that I did the year before and transferred? And she said, no, I saw it in fourth grade. <laughs> so uh, it, it made me feel both insulted that I'm now 42, yeah. and uh, like I like I affected a generation of Houstonians with their their education. Uh, we wrote seven different storybooks. I've traveled the globe to 12 different countries, performed on armed forces entertainment tours on military bases overseas. Uh, it's just been a wonderful experience, and uh, the Houstonians that have allowed me into their hearts over the years. I thank
2: immensely. That's fantastic. Uh, You know, you received attention in an Internet meme that involved a man being shot down during a halftime marriage proposal at a Rockets (laughs) game in 2008 after the woman said no and stormed (laughs) off the court. Tell us what happened next.
6: Well, um, without divulging any trade secrets, uh, some of those bits are staged, some aren't. And we kind of leave our fans guessing as to which ones are and which ones aren't. Um, I I remember that bit well, This was back when uh, YouTube was starting to gain more and more popularity for watching stuff, and I think we got 11 million hits on that in just a week or so's time, and we started getting calls from around the globe. A uh, a TV station in Japan did a story on it, and uh, it was was a memorable moment uh, that I, I definitely consider in one of the top of my career. And really had the uh, the crowd at first shocked and in disbelief, and then kind of offended. (laughs) They were mad at that woman for saying no to uh, to the proposal, at least publicly, and uh, created quite a a stir. Well,
2: whether it was true or not, we just we're just you're not going to divulge, are you? You're not giving it up, are you? (laughs) Right here, you can make history. You can tell us
6: that a uh, a true uh, magician never reveals the secrets right. to his trick so and true. i kind of view this as uh is that magic right. and the whole craft of mascotting
2: you've been a craft of mascotting can you tell us one of the crazier things you've seen or experienced as a mascot
6: oh my goodness there's so many in 1998 i accidentally shot catino mobley in the chest with our t-shirt gun and we haven't had a t-shirt gun at the houston rockets since then Uh, one of the cheerleaders was looking one way but running the other way and accidentally banged into me and we had cheerleaders on the court to throw to the lower level because this gun which we affectionately called the bfg i'll let you figure out what the f stands for uh, but the bfg was so powerful we only shot it to the upper level and they had to throw to the lower level well she's looking one way uh bangs into the back of me and I'm in the costume. I don't see her coming. Knocks me forward to my knees, sets off the gun, and I'm only 20 feet from the huddle where Rudy T is instructing the team at a timeout. The t-shirt rockets right into, rockets, so to speak, uh-huh. aha, <laughs> into the huddle, drops Katino Mobley like a sack of bricks. Right there. They had to cart him off the court. You want to talk about, and I had no clue what happened because I'm in the costume. I just get knocked down. I heard the gun go off. I jump right back up and finish t T-shirt toss, and there's the stupid bear with his big grin painted on his face like, that, who wants a shirt? Right after I just shoot our starting forward in the <laughs> chest and knock him out of the game. Um, I've been humped by Jack Nicholson. Um, my first year on the job, we just won two championships. Jack Nicholson's sitting courtside next to our owner. I go to do this routine where I act like I'm sitting on his lap and uh, bouncing up and down on his knee like a little eight-year-old or like a little four-year-old child would, what I don't realize is all of a sudden the whole crowd laughs hysterically. <laughs> a big, huge guffaw. And I'm like, kind of scratching my head like, oh, this is funny, but it's not that funny. And unbeknownst <laughs> to me, what he had done, and the cameraman's right there, is he wraps his one arm around the waist of the bear, which is a 92-inch waist, and it's mostly dead space and padding in there. So I don't feel it. And he looks next to her at the camera and he acts like he's thrusting into the backside of the costume. And I don't feel it because there's just hula hoops in there that give it shape. And I'm not putting any pressure on his knees. I just kind of squat, making it look like I'm sitting on him so I don't hurt anybody. And then, of course, I finish the routine out by jumping up, bowing down to him, and kissing his feet because he's a big celebrity. But what it looks like is that he's you know, kind of hooked me from behind, and then I thank him for it. Uh, you know, I, I could go on and on about the stories. I ruined an MLK Day parade by accident one time. Uh, we do this MLK Day parade every single year. We're one of the highlights of the parade. I'm in the van. Uh, I'm in my big mascot van. I'm sitting on the hood, and I shoot off streamers one after another, cannons, streamer cannons. Well, my assistant had accidentally packed these Mylar metallic uh, streamers. Well, we're going right right by the big main grandstand area and the booth with the DJ and the music and the PA announcer. And, of course, I want to lay it on thick there because that's the big, important, crowded area of the parade. And what I don't realize is most of these cannons are paper cannons, but he gives me a Mylar one that's metal, and it goes up into the air, catches onto the power lines, and (laughs) blows one of the Transformers out. I hear a huge explosion, and again, I'm in costume, I'm like, what the heck was that? Thinking that like a bomb went off or something, and I had no clue what it was. Well, what it was was one of the transformers. And I blew the power out for like a four block radius, including what was powering the entire stage at the parade. <laughs> so the PA, the music, everything went out the rest of the day.
2: Oh, that's a great and job. I don't
6: realize this until after the fact. So I'm like, Oh great. I just ruined the Martin Luther King jr. Parade.
2: Well, what a great story. And you got about a minute left here. Tell us what it was like to win a spot in the mascot hall of fame.
6: Oh, it was great. It was uh humbling, uh, Especially because it's from a lot of the guys that do this every day for their, their career and their life, your peers, uh, not just, you know, uh, people that really know the insides of the, the profession and the daily grind of it and the, and the challenge of being creative and writing your own material, producing it, directing it and, uh, starring in it. Uh, so it was humbling. It was great. It was one of the great honors of my career. I can't wait to see them, uh, finish construction on it and visit it up in Whiting, Indiana, uh, so it was, it was great.
2: Well, we look forward to meeting you there. We want to be there when, when the induction occurs. We've been talking to Robert Bodwin, and he is the artist formerly known as Clutch. And you can go to robertbodwin.com and catch up with his life where he is at. And thank you for those great, great stories, Robert.
6: Man, I appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. I'm doing inspirational speaking now as a career in marketing consulting. So any of your listeners out there, That uh, would like to reach out to me for a speech or for some consulting help, I would love to entertain uh, a discussion with
2: them. You bet. That's robertbodwin.com and that's robert b-o-u-d-w-i-n dot com. The artist formerly known as Clutch and that is Clutch from the Houston Rockets, their dear and endearing mascot. This is Our American Stories.